2: TV comics, movie stars, hit singles, and some toys. Trivia and dirty jokes. An evening with the
0: boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. Fantastic. So here's here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and
1: Franks. Colossal classic.
2: This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is one of the most versatile and most recognized actors of his generation with notable roles on the Broadway stage as well as both the big and small screen. TV appearances include M.A.S.H., Simon & Simon, Hill Street Blues, Heart to Heart, L.A. Law, Tales from the Crypt, NYPD Blue, The Simpsons, and the miniseries From Here to Eternity. And, of course, the villainous Kappa Regime, Ralph Kifaredo on (laughs) HBO. Close. Close enough. I get Smith wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Joe's enjoying this.
2: Was I? Sopranos. Oh yes, the Sopranos, for which he won the Emmy for Best Supporting Actor. So you'd figure a uh, major hit series, he won an Emmy. I should know the name uh, of the character. <laughs> He's worked. <laughs> He's given unforgettable performances in some of the most popular movies of the past 30 years, including Risky Business, The Idol Maker, The Goonies, Empire of the Sun, Midnight Run, Bad Boys, The Fugitive, Bound, U.S. Marshals, Daredevil, Momento, and The <laughs> Matrix. He worked with esteemed directors such as Steven Spielberg, Taylor Hackford, Christopher Nolan, and alongside everyone from Robert Downey to Tom Cruise to Harrison Ford to Robert De Niro. And if all that isn't impressive enough, he's also the author of Two New York Times bestsellers, including Who's Sorry Now? and Asylum. Please welcome to the show Cypher, Teddy, Cosmo, Caesar, Eddie Moscone, and Guido the Killer Pimp. One of our favorite actors, Hoboken's own Joe Pantoliano. Well, thank you. Gee, when you put it that way, I should be dead for three years. <laughs>
0: it's a miracle often... I could even walk.
1: <laughs> he sometimes adds that to the intro. <laughs> was found dead in his New York apartment. Is
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> survived by. Survived by... <laughs> now, you said that the only time you know who you are is when you're playing a part.
0: Um yeah I I came to the, the realization that I never knew who I was as a person you know I you know as a guy I uh, and, and so that the only time I ever really felt comfortable in my own skin was between the time uh, uh somebody said action and cut or when the curtain came up and then down because I in the in that moment, I knew who I was. I knew what my objective was. I knew what my lines were. Um, I knew what my intention was. I knew what I wanted. Yeah, but um, you know, life is not as uh, as uh, predictable as those things. So there was a certain comfort in in playing those parts. You know, and and being an actor and and pretending to be somebody else. Um, I also. Came to think, you know, to conclude that part of the reason why I like to play villains was that in, in, growing up as a kid, I was bullied a lot, and uh, and I always felt uh, uh, I always felt like a coward. I was a coward because I didn't stand up for myself, um, and so when I am playing those parts, I can I can treat the people that mistreated me with the with the fury and the disdain and and the contempt
1: oh that's interesting that I
0: wanted to that I wanted to uh, be able to do when I was a kid
1: kind of correcting it in art yeah. what happened in life
0: yeah my, 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 my doctor my psychiatrist once said it was like that i I said you know from manipulating my brain all these years as an actor did I, did I make myself nuts you know when I had this Breakdown. Was it because I was an actor? He said, "No, probably the craft that you chose saved your life. That uh, that you sublimated all of that pain and unresolved trauma, which they call post-traumatic stress now, uh, into into a craft that enabled me to visit those emotions and feelings and put them through through a creative format."
2: You know, I I heard, I think Peter Sellers said in interviews that he didn't exist unless he was a character.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that, I also know that I have a hard time enjoying life unless I'm, when I'm not working. You know, I'm just like... Not doing much. You're not interested in much. Uh, <laughs>
2: I don't know if you can relate. I know that feeling. Yes. And you said you're from a family of diseases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You
0: see, yeah like, um, a like a corticopia, like ma- a marathon of uh, – yeah, I was surrounded by – because symptoms – you know the the idea that um, recently they, they call these things mental illnesses or or um, disorders, and I and I don't see them as disorders. I see them as as a, a, an unease, a disease. You know, uh,
1: that's part of the title of your book, yeah. Asylum Disease.
0: And uh, and it's and so it's not a permanent state of mind. It's a it's a momentary um state that you can regulate and get out of many many times uh, like in my family it, it was manifested in in eating disorders uh or or you know cigarette smoking or alcoholism or gambling addictions or um uh or like my father who loved taking risks and so he you know he was a byproduct of of uh, being a part of organized crime and 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 went to jail a lot for that uh, but but the excitement and the energy that that took you out of this kind of for me was this the the idea of being an actor the kind of bipolar atmosphere of getting a call finding out about a project trying to get the project trying to get up for the audition getting the audition waiting to hear if if it's good news or bad news. Well and, you've described
1: you know, you've described show business as an addiction too, waiting yeah. for the next high.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like, you know, show business is a series of uh, I was very touched with the letter you showed me from Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. You know, a ton of uh a a ton of luck and uh, and a pound of courage. Um because you really need to be lucky. You really, you know, you have to you have to be assertive and aggressive and wanting to get an opportunity. But you have to get those opportunities. Otherwise, life isn't so nice.
1: I've seen that in a lot of interviews. You always always do mention luck. Yeah.
2: And this is something that I always think about whenever it has to do with creative people with either mental, emotional problems or uh, substance abuse is the idea of like, you know, like an oyster will get like a grain of sand and it it irritates him and he has to deal with it. And that's how he makes a pearl. Mm -hmm. So do you think like if a psychiatrist just came by, snapped his fingers and made you totally normal, would you still be able to be as good an actor as you are?
0: I uh, you know I I don't know if, I I wouldn't want to be totally normal. You
2: know, I, 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 I got enough problems as it is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> same question Gilbert. Have you thought, same question for
2: you. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Have you have you considered that? Oh, I I definitely think that. Yeah. I definitely think if I wasn't so insecure and had so many, you Mm -hmm. know, like OCD and all the crap that goes on in my head, uh, would I be able to perform? Right. Well, you know, the other thing is that I think most
0: great accomplishments are born out of resentment. In my my own life, it was like I was going to show my mother I wasn't a piece of shit. You know, I'll prove okay. to her that I'm not a piece of shit. I'll prove to, the, to the, you know, Miss Engler, my English teacher, that I'm not a fuck-up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show them. I'm going to become successful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a movie actor, and I'm going to fucking show them that I'm not a piece of shit. And so for me, it really started to get complicated once my dreams started coming true, you know, these ideas and becoming successful and getting the things that I thought was going to define me, the physical life of definition by definition of of the car I always wanted and you know and the beautiful wife and the beautiful house and all of these things and then the, the uh, you know and then the burden and fear that I would one day lose them and yeah. that they never provided any comfort. So I was frightened of losing all of the things that never did anything for me emotionally.
2: It's like I always kind of felt like whenever I signed the deal with the devil to have a career in show business that back then part of the agreement I felt like was that I would be immune to all the problems that regular people have. That's right. Like, no, I wouldn't have depression. I wouldn't have sadness, frustration. It would all be gone. All
0: be gone. All be gone. And I could could erase my past. You know, all of this controversy the last couple of days with Donald Trump talking about um, the vets and and the idea of it being weak, a person being weak. Some people are weaker. Post-traumatic stress. You know, uh, 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 and the, the... the media coverage continues to paint this as a military condition and post traumatic stress is not a military condition anybody can have post traumatic stress you know it's any event that occurs in your lifetime that lives inside your head 6 months after the event and you can't get it out of your head even when you want to that's what that's mm-hmm. what it's a trauma that was unresolved that is still living inside you and um and, and most of the guys a lot of people, the guys and gals that I talked to, because I went, I went uh, to Iraq, because um, uh, I did a documentary, yeah, um, called "No Kidding Me Too," and and what they were talking about had had very little to do with horrific events. Most of the people that suffer from this are first tour of duty, first deployment within the first thirty days of deployment, um, and you know the suicide rate right now is like twenty a day. But I think it's a, it's a microcosm what's happening in our colleges and, and, and you know, to, to our kids at that age. This, you know, 18, 19 years old, to be, you know, to be a, 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 a man, uh, to come into a culture where you're 18 or 19 and have all the, uh, you know, now what do I do? Um, I, think, I think it's difficult. So I think uh, it's nice. It's good that they're talking about this stuff. But it's, it's not just veterans that, you know, have tra- mm-hmm. traumatic pasts. Um, I think like 85% of Americans have unresolved childhood traumas that, that occurred between the ages of birth and six to seven years old.
1: I must say, reading your book, I can understand why there's some post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. It's a stressful childhood. It's <laughs> sort of like you grew up in a Eugene O'Neill play. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, you know, give, give Gilbert a little bit of, of the context of, you know, you, you said your, your father was a gambler. You had a your 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 mother's cousin. Was well, a, it was, I was you a, know if I if I, I
0: remember I remember fighting all the time fighting fighting about not not enough money. There was no money.
1: And You moved ten times, didn't
0: I, you? It, we moved because uh, we, we moved to, we because we were either being evicted or um, we were moving because uh, uh, that the the, the the landlord because of all of the fighting and all of the noise and all the arguing. Um, um, or we was, we were sneaking out on a bill um and i you know one of the things i remember i talk about it in the book is is that we had no credit we in order to get anything in those days in the 50s the late 50s i remember that they would attach like my mom would buy a tv set and they would attach like a parking meter device so to get an hour's worth of electricity you put a quarter in it and that's and they came out every every month and they cleaned out these machines and that's how they got their payment. Same thing with refrigerator. I mean, so can you imagine? But you didn't put you didn't have the quarter to put in the refrigerator. The milk went bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, my mother had had this um, relationship with her third cousin uh, and. And I remember when cousin Flory, i remember him coming as a two year old three year old kid and I remember his mom who uh, i called Aunt Lizzie and i recall i i went to an event my daughter worked uh she works for a film producer in midtown and they had an event down downtown on on uh on like West street near bank or Horatio Street there's a hotel mm-hmm. down there and I said you know your grandfather, when I was like six years old, I, that building right there was the Federal Holding Prison uh, where he was uh, processed and then sent off to Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for um, a 15-year sentence. Um, so when Flory went away in those six years, I remember the, these Christmas rituals of sending packages to Atlanta. And and they always said that, uh, that he was off... He went off to college. <laughs> okay.
1: I, thought was a, I thought it was an interesting uh, yeah. explanation. And,
2: yeah. and you said that they were tapping the phone lines. They were tapping. Yeah, when he came home, and
0: he and he was he, he got back into the life, um, there would be these little clicks. And my mother th- thought she could outfox the FBI <laughs> by whispering. She <laughs> whispered, "Hello." One time, when I did From Here to Eternity, it was a big deal for us. It was a big deal for me. It was the first important job TV I got. Movie TV from here, yeah. it was a miniseries based on the original right. book by James Joyce that was a big 1954 um, Academy Award winning uh, movie um, that resurrected. Frank Sinatra played Angela Maggio. I got cast in the Angelo Maggio part. It resurrected his f- career. And, uh, and I. And we were both from Hoboken, New Jersey, sure. so they made a big deal about that when it was yeah, time to release this mini-series. mini, mini series. You the new transfer?
1: Yeah.
0: I'm Angelo Maggio. And before you get too friendly, I better warn you. I'm a draftee. <sighs> Pruitt, never met
2: one of you guys before.
0: Oh, yeah? Well, don't let the clothes fool you. I happen to be a very important member of this unit. You would do well to cater to me. Okay. So my mother calls me up, um, and she goes, "Joey." She's still whispering. <laughs> <laughs> Why? She goes, "Somebody from the New York Times called me up," and I said, "Well, what do they want?" She, well, they wanted to know about you. They asked me. They asked me if I, you know, talked to you and how I felt about you being. in from there to eternity, and I said, well, "What did you say?" She said, I didn't say nothing. I told. <laughs> told them you were dead to me. And I hung up. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, the article comes out. My Aunt Rosie, they found her. They interviewed her. My mother, what the fuck are these people interviewing her
2: for? I'm your fucking mother. <laughs> yeah, well, I... Yeah, you hung up on them, huh? Great. Now, this thing with post-traumatic stress, I wonder, are you like me where you keep uh having arguments with people who, for all you know, have been dead for the past fifty years
0: oh gosh, well, you know that that's the thing is is that the, you know that's eternal life, isn't it Yes. If they live inside you they live i have dream i have talks yeah, I have talks I don't know if I'm arguing anymore <laughs> some some of them I'm not talking to um but yeah, you know because it's unresolved. It's unresolved, so the only way to resolve it is is uh, reaching down there. And uh, I love that song. She says, "I don't care if the world knows what my secrets are."
1: That's
2: Perfect. That's Joey's ringtone. Um,
0: but you, yeah, no, you. That's what happens. That's what and, happens. And do
2: you constantly go back and try to do things over again? There's a
0: there's a therapy that that, that they have that. Uh, where you act that out, um Dr. T and Dayton, I think uh, she's a f- specialist in that. Um, but i you know I've spent before I realized that i was that I was really crazy, you know i I had somehow gone through about twenty seven years of therapy when i when I was twenty years old, I found therapy. Um, with the group therapy, uh, um, um, it wasn't really a doctor. It was like a lay therapist. But, you know, I did that for like 11 years because I felt like th- that I was, there was something really bad in, in me and I needed to be controlled. Otherwise, I was going to, you know, somebody was going to be harmed by my selfishness and my self-centeredness. And, and so I needed, I, I always needed direction. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why I stayed in acting school for that long. And I think a lot of people are like that, you know a lot of you know, we're tr- kind of tribal by nature, and so you know we want to we want to be validated uh
1: yeah, sure it's one of the nice things about this business actually is that when you're collaborating, I've heard you say that you, your favorite projects are the ones where you're collaborating, where you're brought in on the creative process I mm-hmm. mean there's people around you, yeah, you know there's a fraternity I mean that's got to help yeah, a, and it, and a little bit
0: but it's you know and it's also the nature of. Of that form, that creative form, Show, mm-hmm. you know, making movies. Everybody's got, mm-hmm. you know, whoever's got a good idea, uh, and uh,
1: you said you don't like films where the directors just say, "You stand over there," "You stand over there." But but projects like yeah,
2: I don't like directors Memento, like that. You know, where yeah. you
1: brought in on the yeah on the creative process. Yeah, it,
2: it some struck me now, like where you were talking about how years of therapy. And that you wound up on the Sopranos, which had to do with therapy. Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And you know, and that's the other thing is, is that all of these, all of these characters on on that show, were sick. They, you know, they they weren't all born that way. They, you know, they, it was a byproduct of, of the kind of, um, exposure to evil that they were exposed to. And um, I thought that way about about the character I played, Ralph. That uh, you know, I um
1: Cifaretto, by the way, Gil. Oh. Is that how you say it? <laughs> how, do you, how do you say it? <laughs> <Cifaretto>. <laughs> uh,
2: I I didn't know his last name. Santo for Padre about a year. took him about
1: twelve weeks. <laughs> so don't feel bad. Talk a little bit about Ralph since you brought it up. I mean, you tried, I heard you say you tried to make him the nicest, funniest guy you could make him. Well, yeah because kind of his behavior positive. was
0: you know was it was a given circumstance was right. the, the behavior of, of, of the things that he did. one of the things that it came to me a couple of months into it i i guess i I'd done a couple of terrible things and i and i I called David Chase and I said I, you know i I have a feeling that it seems to me that Ralph never throws the first punch. it's almost like he taught He taunts his um, his victim into into retaliating, then giving him the permission to hurt them, and and it's like if you look at it, it it, every time that he that he struck out against somebody, you know, with the with the white with the girlfriend. You know, she says, I want to get a nice house, and he says, oh, yeah, we'll name her after you, and, you know, so she can grow up to be a stupid mm-hmm. slob like her mother. And then, you know, what are you, crazy, you piece of shit? And then she hits him. And same thing, there's a scene that I had with, uh, with a guy who was an Arab guy who had a garbage truck, and he wasn't paying his vig. And I'm saying, you've got, you know, you got to pay, and I, and, and I break something. Uh, on, on the table and he hits me with a baseball bat and we beat him up so it was like you know taunting um, somebody uh, and then getting them to retaliate he even says when he gets yelled at you know for what he did to that, that girl he goes she hit me right you know you know she hit me A she hit me B she's a whore <laughs> it's a boy We'll name him after me. If it's a girl, we'll name her Tracy after you. This way she can grow up to be a cocksucking slob, just like her mother. Are you out of your fucking mind? Get him, motherfucking piece of shit! That's right, that's right. Get it all out. Get it all out, you little hoe. That's my mother. My mother used to call call women, my sisters. Get over here, you little whoa. It was never whore, but right? it was she turned it yeah. into two words. Right. So so I did the same thing. That was an homage to my mother.
2: I I remember growing up it was always whoa. Yeah. That's an East Coast thing. I heard yeah. it too. Yeah. 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 And and before we forget what was it like working and what was he like as a person James Gandolfini He was
0: adorable. He was uh, he was he was um he was kind, he had a sense of humor. He he was very generous. um, um He was he was shy. Um um he, he, he was inclusive not exclusive to a fault I think I think I think that that, that Jimmy um, also felt uh, you know it's projection on my part but I, I feel like possibly that you know why me why is all this good stuff happening to me I'm just uh, you know mm-hmm. I'm just this fat guy from Jersey you know why why I mean, he, when, he, when he did, I think it was season four, I was gone by then, but he, he got a big payday and he, he wrote huge amounts of checks to people that were not getting a payday, you know, crew members, somebody, you know, he would, I remember one Christmas, he did a, a Christmas party where he just got a ton of cash and he was giving cash away to everybody. You know, he was, he was that kind of generous. We
1: had Dominic Chiannese sitting right where you are. Uh-huh. and telling us some some of the same things yeah. about them yeah I find this interesting too. You find it hypocritical that people say, especially italian Americans say the show is disrespectful to italian Americans, the same people that worship the godfather
0: yeah and 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 uh and also a lot of those people never saw the show mm-hmm. but also i i i never i never saw and I never had a conversation with David Chase about this, but I never saw the show as um an anthology of an Italian, about Italian-Americans, I, I thought it was more about the deconstruction of the American family. Like, uh, the Godfather represented the, the the construction of family honor, right? And um, and here was a show about a group that became so dishonorable that, that they did anything to anybody and and they betrayed each other, you know. Uh, um you know, a lot like what, what the, this political season is is all about. You yeah. know, and, uh, yeah.
1: There is some of that. While we wait for Gilbert to find the men's room,
2: <laughs>
1: we promise we'll come back to the show after a word from our sponsor. Don't go away. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise.
0: What a wonderful day!
1: And now back to the show. Tell, tell Gilbert about growing up with Sinatra, on the same block, on Monroe Street. Yeah. Sinatra was from. Well, block, Sinatra, the Sinatra grew up there and
0: Jimmy Roselli. Yeah. You know, uh, and so... Uh,
1: and your family knew his family, knew Sinatra's family. Yeah. There was a little bit of bad blood, and I love the story about your dad.
0: Oh, well, you know, that's...
1: Um, Gil, you'll like this. Oh, yeah.
0: What happened was, <laughs> is my grandfather was the first Italian, was born in Italy... Pietro Pantaleano, who became a firefighter in an all Irish uh, business model. Firemen in Hoboken were all Irish. He was the first Italian immigrant to become a fireman. Worked his way up through through the ranks and became the first Italian American. Um, by then, he became an American citizen. Uh, Captain of the precinct, so he was the captain. So in those days, I, I guess, like today, um, they made. A, he was he was retiring, and Dolly Sinatra went up, to, said, "Hey, listen, if you
1: Frank's mother, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, if you appoint Marty Frank's father to to succeed you, Frankie will give you a thousand dollars under the table." Okay. Yeah, go to—he's playing at the Paramount. Go to the Paramount, and uh, and uh, he'll give you the money. So now, years later, my father's dead now. All, all of that bad blood, but I found out that the story was that Grandpa went there. Frank wouldn't let him in, left him at the stage manager door, and he, he said, said, "I don't know anybody." I by don't that know name. anybody named Pete Paniano. <laughs> So that was the story. And so the Paglianos hated Sinatra for stiffing them, right? <laughs> so when I'm writing my when I'm when I'm doing the Who's Sorry Now, the first uh, book, uh-huh. I go to, I go to a Hoboken uh, uh, mayor's office, uh, Stevie Capiello, who used to be a cop and was from the third ward, and, and he said, you know, that ain't that ain't true about uh, Sinatra. What it really happened is Jip DiCarlo, who was the boss, he was like the boss of of all of New Jersey. He was like the underboss of of Vito Genovese in New York, right? Jip finds out that Frankie made this deal. And he goes to Frank. He goes, oh, Pete sent to me for three grand. Give me the money. So Frank gave him the (laughs) $1,000. So when my grandfather went (laughs) to the Paramount, what really happened was Frank came out. He goes, hey, Pete, how you doing? He said, did you see the show? He says, no, no, I came for my money. He says, oh, I gave it to Jip DiCarlo. He told me, you know... You him He goes. Oh yeah. He says. Well, don't tell the kids.
1: Oh. So then he
0: grandpa goes in the car. And my uncle Papa says, "You get the money." He goes, no, his son of a bitch didn't pay me." He said he didn't know who I was.
1: <laughs> and they and your dad held on to that for a long time. It, it,
0: it, it, he he was dying. He was diagnosed with lung cancer, and uh, he got he 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 had a pain in his leg, and they rushed him to the hospital, and he's being. Uh, the, you know, doing the paperwork for the emergency room somewhere in you know Hudson County, and uh, the nurse said, "Where are you from?" He said, "Hoboken, New Jersey." And she says, "Oh, Frank Sinatra country." She and he said, "Fuck you, fuck Frank Sinatra. I don't want to die here." And they, they put him in the car, and on his way to the other hospital, he died.
1: <laughs> I love that. Those are some of his last words. Yeah. Fuck you, fuck you and fuck, you fuck Frank, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra.
2: That's and great. you told a story, and I think they even made it into a cartoon. Then, can you tell that story about this beautiful girl? For the first time that, I
0: ever bought a girlfriend home.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were very shy among girls. I
0: mean. Yeah, and, and also, I thought that, you know, I thought that women would eventually turn into my mother. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be under their thumb. Like, my mother's, you know, my mother would just beat the hell out of my father, even my even my wise guy father, you know, she she had she was the toughest man I ever knew was my mother.
2: That's <laughs> a good one. Uh,
0: so we I take this girl, Ellen, and she's like a, a runway model and she's beautiful and uh, I wanna show off a little bit. And I take I, you know, I take it down the Jersey Shore where my, my uh, Florey and my mother can you know scratch up enough money to rent a bungalow for a week. And it's Sunday afternoon and we're sitting down and my mom's at the head of the table and Florey's at the other head. I'm sitting next to my mother. Ellen's across the way from me next to my mother. My sister is between me and Florey. and then there's Joe the insurance man, who was a friend of Florey's sitting next to Ellen – in between Flory and Alan, So um, my sister has got this glass of iced tea. And uh, and in the inside of the glass, there's ridges, and she's kind of mixing the ice uh, inside the glass, and it's hitting the ridges, and it's making noise, and it's bugging me, and I go, Marianne, do you have to do that? And my sister, was like 12 at the time, she goes, Jesus Christ, and she slams the glass. You can't do a fucking thing in this house. So Flory <laughs> says, watch your mouth. My mother... <laughs> Steam starts coming out of her ears and she looks down at him and she goes she ain't your daughter mind your own business and Flory picks up a salad bowl and smashes it on the table and he goes I put the food on this fucking table don't you ever talk to me like that and my mother goes oh big shot what are you going to do shoot me you're going to shoot me and I'm like "So I get so mad at her I go you see that's why I don't bring anybody into this house because of your fucking mouth And my mother turns on me now and she goes, you little summoner bitch, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And my mother grabs her breast, she twists her breast and she goes, I cursed the milk that fed you. You should have died in my womb, in my womb you should have died. And Ellen is eating. All she can do is eat. We're screaming and crying and food's flying everywhere. And she's just, her head's down and she's eating sausage and peppers. And uh, <laughs> I pack my bag. I'm outside. Joe's saying, Say, go in and tell your mother you're sorry. Fuck you. I didn't, you know, she started it. And uh, and Ellen, I'm, I'm, we're leaving. And Ellen see the deconstruction of her family. That's the end. And my mother opens up the screen door. She goes, Joey, you want coffee? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect.
1: <laughs> so, Joe, let's talk a little bit about your attempts to escape. You, what did you, you, you watch? You watched a lot of the Million Dollar Movie. You watched yep. Martha Ray.
0: I watched Martha Ray and the Million Dollar Movie, Mary Mailman, um, 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 the Three Stooges, Abbott mm-hmm. and Costello, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 um, and I've and I've just loved Harpo Marx. Uh, mm-hmm. But I had this, you know, I remember watching these black and white films and thinking um, that there was this tremendous fear that I had that. I'm going to die. I'm going to live my whole life, and I'm going to die. And there's never going to be any evidence that I ever existed. But I'm looking at these actors, black and white actors and actresses, and I'm thinking, well, gee, they're dead, but they're still here. They still exist on the television. People see them, and that—that's the evidence that they were there. If I can become an actor. And become successful was well, never even no, you know, I never even thought about because i just I'll become an actor and
2: I'll live forever.
1: There's a term in the book you use, technicolor ghost. Technicolor ghost. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, I I when you were talking about how your mother would, would attack your father, it reminded me uh, Pat Cooper when we had him on <laughs> well, the show. We had Pat Cooper. Oh, in here. Oh, I love yeah. that he guy. Said the mother was uh, his. Uh, his mother was busting his father's ass. And so the father just quietly got up and took, found the birth, uh, no, the marriage certificate. And he goes, you know, what what name is over there? And what name's that? And where did, what does it say there? And he goes, now where on this page does it say, I got to take you shit? <laughs>
1: You should listen to that episode we did with him, Joe. I'll send it to you. Oh, I got it. It's gold.
0: I love Pat Cooper. It's gold. Oh, God. Um, But, you know, when I saw The Godfather, I remember thinking, there's something wrong with this picture because the women were so subservient and quiet. And I was like, that's not how I remember it. (laughs) It was the other way around. (laughs) The men were always quiet and the women were like running the family. Right. And... uh, and so I, that's another reason why I wanted to tell this story, but then uh, Terry Winter, Terry Winter read a galley of of uh, Who's Sorry Now, and uh, and I said, you know, this Sopranos think, writer, he was a, yeah, yeah writer on Sopranos and other things, great mm-hmm. things. Uh, um, but I said, you know, this idea about the dominant father and the weak mother, that's not you know I, that's not how I remember. He said, but you know. The Godfather is really based on Mario Puzo's mother. And I didn't know that.
1: That's interesting. It's really wow. interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah.
2: Now we have, I think, or had rather a mutual friend uh, that we both knew and I I we both worked with Charlie Rocket. Yeah. I yeah. worked with him on Saturday Night Live, that terrible season. Yeah. And uh
0: I, he, I I didn't know. You know that part of Charlie, I, I didn't know. I do. I knew that he, you know, he was. I, I knew him socially at first. We wound up working together on a movie, uh, but there was a time when we were all spending a lot of time in New York. Him and Tony Edwards and um, um, and Charlie's wife Beth and uh, my wife Nancy and 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 Charlie was always. A sobering com- companion, you know. He, he was he was very charming and funny, but he was always also a good listener. So I, I had some really deep conversations with him about my own confusing life, and uh, and then, you know, life you have kids and. Uh, but I we asked him because he was an ordained minister. He went and got one of those eleven dollar ordained minister things, and he so he married Nancy and I. He married us, and it was great. And he was great. Uh, it was a wonderful event, a wonderful wedding, and we had a, we had a blast. And and we were both Nancy and I were both married before, so it was kind of took the onus off of of it. Uh, but then, you know, Charlie, I was shooting a film in Florida that I was also a producer on, so I was in pre-production, and he called me. and it turned out that they had moved back to Connecticut, but deeper closer to Rhode Island, where he's from, I believe. and I and I said, well, um, yeah, I'm in Florida now. Um, and you know, Tony's he they got a place in in Connecticut. why don't why don't we all get together for Thanksgiving? How you doing? And he said, I'm pretty good, you know, slowing down a little bit. But I, you know, I take the train in and I do some voiceover stuff and um, he sounded fine. And then Nancy called, that was Sunday on a, on I think Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning maybe it was, to say that Charlie had, had a slit his throat. You know, it was really, that was kind of like the beginning of of my journey through this depression that was always there, but I didn't know it, and because uh, I remember thinking, like, well, I had this thought that was maybe that's the answer, you know, not like, not an anger or. My, the first thought was maybe that's the answer, and it scared me to death. The idea that you know, what do you talk, you know, like the conversation I'm having, like what. Well, What's wrong with you? How could you even think that way? And, you know, uh, it was a combination of of nine eleven and all of this stuff happening. And, and it kind of kicked up all of this emotional dust of the primary, that the, the 10, 11 years of the first 10, 11 years of my life that just started getting kicked up.
1: And So Charlie's death was was among the wake-up calls.
0: Yeah, it was a big yeah. wake-up call.
1: Did you stay in wake-up. touch with him, Gil, in, in yeah, later years?
2: I... It it I didn't really stay in touch with him. I remember what what's uh, totally untrue uh, with Charlie is like they say. You know, he said fuck on the air, and that destroyed his career. And it, it didn't. He was always in movies, yeah. TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. and I remember the last time I saw him, we just got thrown together in this Jenny McCarthy sitcom. We were both doing guest spots on the same. We were playing brothers, and he invited me to his house for dinner, and we had a lot of laughs. And to- and I didn't see any other side to him. I mean, especially cutting your throat—that's, I mean, self-hatred with with, with two yes, With yes. two knives. Well,
0: you know, like Japanese yeah. style.
2: And so that's not a cry for help. That's you you hate yourself. You want well, or
0: you know, or not. I mean, it's like what 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 one of the doctors said, because Nancy, Nancy, and I think our friend Kayla, they went up to be with Beth. You know, it's like punching a wall, you know, uh, or or hitting a steering wheel. You know, we'd be surprised to know how many people out there commit suicide, and we and wind up looking like car accidents. Um, you know, people go into trees or boulders. It, it it becomes this fuck it moment where you just, you know, you just go like, and then you can't take it back. Right. You know, they talk to people who jump off bridges.
2: That's one I always think about. Whenever I hear about someone jumping off a bridge or a building, there has to be that fucking split second where you go, what the fuck did I just do? Right. Right.
1: Now you say you're happiest when you're working. Was was making it as an actor, just starting to make it as an actor in the early days, you have a memory of that? Was was that did that take some of the, the crappy feelings away? No, be, I think I think I I,
0: I I you know, the from the first time I was, I did a play in high school, that feeling, uh being in the lights and, up the and, and people yeah and, yeah, and or 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 being just doing scenes in acting class. There was something to that, um, hearing hearing an audience, hearing their attention, um, um, getting a laugh, um, it was very you know very exciting and 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 I felt alive. the other the thing The thing about depression is, is in my case, that it. Felt more alive than happiness, you know. When I, when I when I'm when I'm in a in a bad state, I can feel it in my chest. You know, I can feel it in my heart. I feel it in my body. When I'm in a you know state of elation where there's like good news, you know, I, I, things are go, going good. I it doesn't feel real to me. You know,
2: interesting. It's,
0: it's not as familiar. It's not that it's not as familiar a feeling.
2: You you said that you were at the Sundance Film Festival, and you were talking about sitting on your bed. You were all dressed. Oh yeah, I was going skiing,
0: and uh, and I and I'd, I'd put on all my ski stuff, and I had the, you know the, the, goggles on my top of my head, and I couldn't get I couldn't move, and I had this you know, talk with my brain saying, move, come on, Joey, move, just take the next step. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I remember hearing Dick Cavett describe it as um, if, if somebody had come up with this elixir and put it five feet away and, and say, drink this and everything will be all right. Everything will be great that he couldn't make it those five feet.
1: Let's just shift gears a little bit. I want to get to some of the things in the book, some of the angels in your career. The, the, two of the touching stories are your relationship with Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson, and then mm-hmm. later Natalie Wood. Yeah. Which um, you call, people you call your angels.
0: Well, you know, they, they Flory was an angel. You know, the the people that made made you feel like you will work the investment um, when you have nothing, um, and uh and and they and they represent what your dream is um but you know the the Wallach family they've been a very important part We talk about
1: them on this show quite a bit. Yeah, He's one of our favorites.
0: And they are they you know it, it was like Roberta and Peter and Catherine was was a kid when when I met. Her. I was I was eighteen when I met them.
1: You knew his children in acting school.
0: I knew Roberta. Roberta, you we were in acting school together, and then I got to know, yeah, uh, you know, everybody because she brought me over to the house, you know, and I was at the house um, for Annie's uh, shiva and then Eli's uh, this summer, you know, that living room that I went into when I was eighteen years old. I was in that living room forty years later, you know. Weird. Uh,
1: and she
2: passed recently, Ann Jackson. She
0: passed. Yeah. Uh, she yeah. She yeah. passed. Uh, actually, it was Annie's. Yeah, Annie was the last one. Yeah.
2: And Eli Wallach is who they wanted for to, Maggio to be. To be Maggio. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. He, he, he was a doing a connection. play and couldn't do it.
1: Did you show up at his house on the wrong night. There was a there was a New Year's Eve party.
0: It was a it was a day party. <laughs> yeah, the wrong day. Yeah. It was. Uh, my friend Michael Kell and I, we, we were invited to go to their New Year's, New Year's party. And I guess New Year's fell on a Sunday, but it was uh, you know, it was this actually going to be on the second. No, it fell on a Saturday. So we went, and Eli opens the door. He goes, hi, how you doing? Good. What are you you, know, you want to see the kids? And I said, no, we came for the party. He goes, the party's tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my God. He says, well, come on in. And so we're in the kitchen, and then somebody else came. so they wound up, uh, you know, making some stuff and having coffee. And so we got to go (laughs) twice.
2: Yeah, that's nice. do you – this this is something I experience a lot. Do you, like, in your life, like, look at stuff just even going on in the day and you go, wow, anybody else would would think they died and went to heaven. Anyone else would be enjoying this so much.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know it's it's like an empty. It's like the, the hole is so big you can't fill it up, you know, and it's like when I was you know if if I was if I was a you know if I was a movie star if I was making two million dollars a picture if I was making seven million dollars a picture if I was making twenty million dollars a picture then I'd be happy if I oh, yeah. you know when I when I won the Emmy award it was like.
1: I was just going to ask you it's about. It's an Emmy. That. Yeah, you had a yeah. you had an is this all there is moment. Yeah,
0: I bet you if this was an Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Stack, I did I did a TV show uh, called The Finelli Boys, and Robert Stack guest starred. We spent a whole week with Robert Stack, one of the greatest guys. The stories he told, oh, wonderful. Bet. But he said, you know, when he won, you know, he 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 went and did The Untouchables, and it was Desi Lu and Desi Arnaz. You know, bought him a, a Mercedes, and he was like, "I don't want to go." And and his wife said, "You gotta go." And he said, "But winning an Emmy's like being the world's tallest midget. Who gives a shit?" <laughs>
2: that's
1: a great line.
0: <laughs> so I'm like, it was like I'm up there, and I'm hearing Robert
2: Stack. <laughs> <laughs> Who gives a shit, right? <laughs> Now, you also, you said a story. I think the movie was black and white. Oh, it's so Yeah, And and you asked, you were friends with Robert Downey Jr. Right. So you you wanted to call in a favor. I
0: called in a favor and I said, Robert, you know, there's there's a part, uh, can you call? And um, he said, sure. And then uh, I got the job. And uh, and I guess I don't know if Toback knew who I was, but you know I'm on the set with him, and he's like, you know, Downey called me. I said that was really nice of him. He goes, well, you know what he said? He said, he said if you don't hire Joe Paniliano, you should die of cancer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like Jerry Lewis in the yes. King of Comedy.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a great line. Yeah.
1: He, has a, he has to be an interesting guy, Tobin. Uh, uh, yeah. I love Fingers. I love that movie. Yeah, like he's a,
0: But, you know, it's like I always – I say in, in Asylum because that Hollywood is really where the craziest people go. Mm-hmm. The sickest, craziest, dysfunctional, insecure. That's where we go. That's, that's our haven. That's, that's where we go for our cure. And, uh, Attention. and then, you know, yeah. if, and then if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to get everything you want, if you're really fucked up, you give it back. You know, you, all of those stories, they wind up giving it back and they go, why would they do that? Why would they, you know, why would they beat their wife? Why would they do, you know, you know alcoholism and drug addiction? Why would they do that? Because it ain't enough. The hole is still there. You know, they say they have a 12-step program. They say it's an inside job, you know, that you can't heal it from the outside. You can only heal it from the inside.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this.
1: tell us a little bit about you you're out in LA with your with your your first wife and and Natalie Wood you're, you you meet Natalie Wood who meant something to you because as a kid west side story meant right, a lot right, to you right 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 and suddenly the director's inviting you into his office and there's Natalie Wood and that was a moment for you oh it's like that was a life changing moment i was
0: like uh, i think i think she's the first movie star cuz i was only 26 years old and recently in california maybe i saw People on the street, you know, but I'm I'm meeting Natalie Wood, and you know, uh, and um, and then Steve Railsback, who played Pruitt, uh, and I were in that courtyard uh, where Buzz Kulick's office was, and we they were teaching us how to march, you know, with with a technical advisor, and uh, I remember this this guy walking toward us, and he had an ascot and a, a, a car jacket on, and he said, Joe Panellana. and it was it was Robert Wagner, you know, and that's the other, I grew up with the, It Takes a Thief. Oh, sure. You know, I, I love that yeah. show, and I love the way his hair, <laughs> you know, the way they made his hair, and yeah. I was like, holy shit. And he says, uh, so I hear you got a crush on my wife, and I was like, "How da <laughs> And then they invited us to their house, and um,
1: and you met Gregory Peck.
0: Oh, Greg! Yeah. I just oh my saw, God. I yeah. just saw the Gregory Peck documentary. Um, yeah, I, I uh, after I after I done I I did from here to eternity. It was semi successful. They wanted me to do the series uh, that I, I that I didn't do, and I I went back to weighing tables at Mateo's, who's from Hoboken, Maddie Action. On Westwood Boulevard, I was a waiter there, and the show is like just—it's coming out. It's up against Roots 2. and it, and they're showing it once a week, and so you know people are asking me to sign their menu and.
1: Uh, <laughs> That's a showbiz story. Yeah, you're and, in a movie. You're in a hit movie. They offer you the series. You don't want the series. You want to do movies, and you yeah. think you're going to be stigmatized by doing series. Do I have that right?
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: So you go back to wait- waitering. I and everybody recognizes you.
0: Yeah, and and that you could do in New York but in California was maybe not a good idea. So anyway, the agent finds out and he says you can't do that. What does it cost? I'll give you, a, you know, we'll, we'll loan you $6,000 to cover your nut until you get your next job. In the meantime, I had I was owed $6,000 in back taxes. So I had to borrow $6,000 from the Wagners and uh and R.J. said, well, come over to the house and I'll give you a check. So he said, wait. Um, he said, come back here. Uh, I want There's somebody I want you to meet. And Gregory Peck was – they had a little gym and he was working out. And he goes, Greg, Greg, come here. I want you to meet somebody. And it was like, how do you do? And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> that stuff is surreal. Yeah, that bet. stuff is surreal. When you meet these people – that framed your life, but larger than life. And, and a guy like Gregory Peck really was larger than life. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and they say something nice to you. And it's like, you know, it helps you to keep going. Sure. Keep going. But I, when I was, doing, I was doing Frankie and Johnny uh, on Broadway, he, and he came with Jill St. John, John, you know, came to see it, you know, didn't tell me he was coming. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of, I mean, he's such an adorable guy.
1: You wanted to be like Spencer Tracy. You wanted to be like Cary Grant.
0: Yeah, and I got I got stuck with Joe Panaliano. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you haven't done bad, Joe. Now you mention another actor who, for the people out there who don't know the name, look him up. You'll recognize him right away. That uh, Robert Davi. Robert Davi. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did I mention him?
2: No, no, no! But, in in, but, an, in an interview, uh-huh. you you mentioned that you you guys grew up together. No, no! What that did you, you say? You were the rivals. The two of you didn't get along. We
0: didn't get along on on. Uh, well, yeah, I didn't get along with him, um, on on the uh, in the Goonies. Oh, okay. <laughs> we didn't get along with each other, and uh, and it we knew each other. He he had played a he he had done a, a couple of days' work on from here to eternity and uh, and he lived he lived in in Marina del Rey and I was living in Venice and, and uh, we we hung out a couple of times so we had a we kind of knew each other and so when they when they put us on film they put us on tape for the for the Finelli brothers i remember him saying you know in the interview because it was it wasn't an audition it was just like an open interview and he said, you know, he's wearing a hairpiece, right? <laughs> Which I thought was really a shitty thing to say. So I took it off and I said, so yeah, so if you want me to come without it, I can come without it. I you know, pulled it off. Yeah. You want me to be, be, be younger? And I lowered it. I said, I can be younger. Uh, <laughs> and I guess they liked the banter. But but that relationship kind of evolved into what happened in the movie. It was What happened in the movie was was was... You know what the way we were treating ourselves, so each other, off camera too.
1: Interesting. I love bringing up these old actors, these these great character actors, Robert oh, Dobby yeah. and Steve Railsback too. Railsback, and the, yeah, and the Railsback's great stunt great. Great, great. man, stunt man. And He and played Charles Manson. Charles Manson, and Helter Skelter, and Ed.
0: Ed. He also did a Ed Queen, Ed. That uh, Ed Guine. Oh, Ed Guine.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah well, yes. Good actor, yes. underrated
2: actor. Mm-hmm. Now I remember. And, I mean, they it mentions MASH in your credits, but I remember that episode. You do? You're lying in bed, and I I think I remember it <laughs> because it has to do with a Jew. <laughs> okay, I got to hear this. <laughs> you, like, want to get out of the army.
0: I wanted so, to yeah, – yeah, I, I, I feel <laughs> – I steal this guy's... Uh, his dog tags. This guy, he's yeah. di- he's, he dies, and I steal his dog tags, and uh, and I w- wind up going into the hospital, and they, and they give me a blood transfusion that almost kills me because his blood type is different than my blood type. But when I saw that episode, it inspired me to get a nose job. Was it because... <laughs> Because they, you know what they call 50-50? It's like when yeah. two people are looking at each other so the camera's getting the angle. And I said, you know, you could have Cary Grant's career if you had a smaller nose. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, I'll, I'll, play, I'll play less bad guys if I had a smaller nose. So... uh my son, years later, is on television, or it was Masher from here, or uh, from Risky Business. One of the, I said, "Look, I'm in this, this," and my kid's like, you know, nine years old, and he's looking at the TV, and he's looking at me, and he gets out of the chair and he gets eight feet close, closer to the TV. <laughs> looks at me, he gets now he's three feet away. Finally, he's nose to nose to the TV. He keeps looking at me, and he goes, "Dad, what happened to your
2: nose?" Because <laughs> I, I remember in that episode, Father Mulcahy uh, s- has to learn some Jewish prayer, and he and comes to
0: my character. Yeah, right? I love yeah it. he comes to me. Uh, yeah, that was a great job because that was like the last year that they were doing it
1: 81 you were, you did that mash episode
0: my kid was just born then yeah. my son was just born
1: pretty early in your career
0: yeah and david ogden styers was he also directed that episode and you know uh, it was like doing a play we, the first day everybody sat around the table and then then they camera blocked each scene and then the follow, so you you shot it tuesday wednesday thursday friday
1: what do you remember about uh, making a uh... <laughs> Uh, was this a pilot or a series called McNamara's Band with, with John
0: Biner? We had John on the oh, show. Oh, Wow,
1: we had John really? on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. What's he
0: doing? Funny, he's, great. As he's ever. in
1: Florida and funny as ever.
0: Where does he live in Florida?
1: We'll track him down for you. We we'll get um, you the info. John Biner, that was
0: that was the first job I got. That was really the first job I got in in California. So,
1: McNamara's Band. It
0: was. It was. It. It was Harry Columby, it was uh, Bernie Kukoff and Jeff Harris. And, uh, you know, Harry went on to be – he was, he was Biner's manager, Michael Keaton's manager. Yeah, I was going to say Michael Keaton. Um, but uh, it, was, it was about it – it took place during World War II and they were – it was like the, the dirty half dozen. Okay. You know, it was like these guys are all in jail and you work for the government and if you don't get killed at the end of the war you get your pardon. And Biner they, they were bank robbers. And Biner was the brains and then uh, Bruce Kirby
1: Yeah, Bruno Kirby's ah. dead. Right, Bruce Kirby,
0: he was the getaway driver who didn't couldn't drive. Um, Sid Haig was uh, Zoltan oh, the Great. Oh wow! Sid Haig, too. Sid Haig. Sid Haig was, uh, was was the leg breaker that couldn't hurt a fly. <laughs> uh, I was the I was the bomb specialist that was afraid of bombs. I mean, like, we did three episodes. It was like three one hour episodes for ABC. It was fantastic. It sounds
1: almost Hogan's Heroes-ish a little bit too. Well, and, yeah,
0: yeah, and it came after Hogan's yeah, Heroes. Yeah. Uh, but Hogan wasn't that Starlock 17 Hogan series? Pretty oh, much. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. But I remember I was doing a scene we were we were at the Harold Lloyd estate. That years later my friend Ron Burkle bought and turned it into a beautiful palace, but it was it was run down and we shot there. And uh, and I and I remember I, I was wrestling a bear with the Nazis. The Nazis <laughs> were yeah, we 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 pretended to be gypsies. We pretended to be Nazis. It was hysterical. It was
2: hysterical. That's great. you also told a story that one time you were going to do a movie and you had a twenty four hour layover in Tokyo.
0: Yeah. Uh was 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 it was for um it was Empire and, of the Sun. Yeah. And uh, and the, the layover was at Nagata, which was like three hours from Tokyo. But I, you know, I wanted to see Tokyo. I'd never heard of Nagata, and so the, the Tokyo guys, the the Warner Brother guys, picked up my girlfriend and I and took it and drove us all the way to Tokyo, and we had this amazing night. And I got. Uh, I drank a lot of sake (laughs) and we got on the airplane and it was a Chinese airline and they, you know, boy, you really appreciate guys that know what the fuck they're doing because this plane was
1: oh, oh." (laughs) my God, my worst nightmare. And I'm
0: throwing up in the bathroom and, you know, know, the muscle, you know, the body muscle, you go, my ass is hitting the door and it's forcing my... (laughs) banging my head against the wall and I'm puking everywhere but in the toilet. And I was green. When we landed, I was green. And I'm walking with my girlfriend and these, these Chinese guys, these spotters, they grabbed me and they are going to quarantine me. They thought I was hazardous. And the production manager who was a British guy, saw what was going on and grabbed me and was able to talk them into letting me go through customs. And uh, by the time I got to the hotel, I was feeling a lot better.
1: <laughs> Our friend Frankie Verderosa is, uh, of course, here, as he is every week, and he's a big fan of Midnight Run. So we have to, uh, out of respect to Frankie, we have to ask you about Moscone. Eddie Muscone, Eddie Moscone and Bale Bonds.
2: Moscone's Bale
0: Bonds. Jerry, put Eddie on the phone. Jack, what's the progress?
2: I got him. You got him? The Duke. He's standing right here. You got him? Already?
0: Sure do. Want to
2: say hello? Say hello to your bail bondsman, Eddie Mascone. Hello. There you go. Jonathan Mardukas in the flesh. Jack, I love you. What happened? How did this happen? Where'd you find him? I found him in New York. We're at the airport.
1: Holy Christ, this is wonderful. This is wonderful news. Martin Bress, the director you knew previously. Yeah, I,
0: I knew Marty uh, when he was, you know, from his NYU days uh, as a student. And then, um, but he... Jerry, Jerry Saldo was a mutual friend of ours. Uh, and Saldo, I guess, mentioned to Marty, you know, what about Joey Pants? And then Marty called and said, listen, there's these two characters, you, you know, whichever one you want. And I read it and I said, ah, I don't want to. I'd done that before. Um,
1: you were supposed to be two of the hood, the hoodlums, the guys that yeah, worked Tweedledee for. And for and uh, yeah, Tweedledee and
0: Yeah. Is this idiot number one? Put right, on okay. Farina. And I, I and I said well, I want some. I want to do something different. Um, I said well, I want to play the the accountant. He says, Yeah, well, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> uh, <he> said, <laughs> I said, Well, then what about what about the bail bondsman? He goes, No, 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 no. I got this other guy. I got this guy in my. I you know I want him to be a big guy, big big fat guy. I said, Well, that's the only part that I I could do. He said, Well, you you know that one I ain't giving away. You know if you want that one, you got to earn it. You got to come in and read for it. So I came in and I read. And uh, and I got the job.
1: Uh, you read with De Niro. I read with De Niro. Yeah.
0: And uh, I remember my agent calling. He said, I got good news and I got bad news. Yeah, uh, uh, okay. So what's the good news? You got the part. Great. What's the bad news? Just went into turnaround at Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because Marty wants... Charles Grodin, and they wanted Cher. I
1: remember. They wanted share. Did and, you know that? Oh, To no. be the accountant opposite De Niro? Oh, jeez. Can you imagine?
0: So he said, you know, so, you know, Marty stuck by his guns, and and, uh, and and Universal picked it up.
1: It's a hell of a movie. Yeah, it still is. Yeah. It just holds up so well.
0: Uh, yep.
1: We, we had Amy Heckerling here, and she's also friends with, with Martin Brest We yeah, were they asking, to, you yeah. know, what's going on and why, why he isn't uh, still... Making films because he he made he really you know had Marty
0: a, didn't make a lot of movies when he was working. Yeah, but it was like he, every four years, every time it was an election. Like he'd be doing a movie right now because there's an, it's an election year. But but he um,
1: but going in style is so good, and, so and, good, and
0: everything's getting remade. Yeah, I they, know they've, they've been talking about trying to remake uh, doing another Midnight Run. Um, but you know, he'd be the last guy they'd call because the they, the the these studio guys, they get younger and younger yeah. and and they and they want to re they it's almost like they reward ambition. Let's get a let's let's get a young good commercial director or you know, video director. We're gonna get, you know, it's like um and Marty Marty's the guy that brought that to life. And when you think about what he did with, uh, with um, um, Beverly Hills Cop, yeah, and uh,
1: sure, which and, was a Stallone vehicle, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, Marty's Marty's uh, knows this stuff, and he's really excellent. I just worked with Ron Shelton, who, who another did, guy, you know, he yeah. did um, Bull Durham, Tin Cup, sure, uh, um, white men, white, white man can't, can't jump, jump uh, right, and uh, you know, th- this is the first film he's directed in like twelve years. He wrote, he wrote. Uh, Bad Boys 2 and he's I like of, Blaze too. He wrote Blaze yeah. and directed yeah, Blaze good. and he wrote and directed Cobb with Tommy Lee right. Jones. You know, this is a guy that it's like I remember the first day at work we rehearsed for a few days like a week but then, then it was that first day at work and I was like wow, it's been a long time since, I, since I've, I've been working with with filmmakers that really know what they're doing and uh and I was reminded uh, how how long it's been and and how these young kids, you know, they, they've they got they got the ambition and somebody gives them the money. But a lot of them, you know, it just doesn't come together. And then they go, well, gee, why isn't the movie business any better?
1: You worked with three directors, Andrew Davis, uh, Martin Brest, and Paul Brickman, who all made early marks, yeah. really good films. Yeah. And then— all three of them kind of fell off the map a uh, little bit.
0: Well, you know, it's like um,
1: Paul Brickman's follow-up to "Risky Business" meant "Men Don't Leave" is very good.
0: But Paul, I, I, I mean, I, my, my impression of Paul is is that he doesn't. I don't know if he likes directing that much. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I know he loves to write, and he's been very prolific in his writing, and and uh, but I, I, I don't know if he liked the idea of of all of these departments because you know he didn't take take the energy from risky business cuz he got offered for the next year and a half he was he was the first guy they went to i'm sure um and then uh, you know but a lot of you know we we all these guys are all in their early 70s now you know and Apparently, it's uh, there's only two guys that are allowed to work after 75, and that's Clint Eastwood and, and Woody Allen. Right. And I was like, <laughs> interesting. They get the pass. Interesting. Nobody else is allowed. <laughs>
1: right, interesting. Good films. And t- tell the story of The Fugitive. It's a, it's a funny story, too, is when you decided you would be the guy that went... When, oh, when, with Harrison? You'd be um, the guy to take um, the beam?
0: Yeah, so... so. Let me see how, how that story... The setup was... Uh, because we shot that in continuity, um, and we improvised a lot and, uh, and the writer would write the sequence and then everybody would look at it and say, are we going to do it this way? Are we going to do it differently? And so the beam, the beam story was the Tommy Lee, uh, the Harrison uh, is having the fight, you with with the bad guy. You know the
1: climax guild they're in the laundry oh, room? Yeah. Yeah.
0: They go through the they go through the the uh the glass ceiling mm-hmm. of the elevator. Right. right. Uh the skylight and uh and then Tommy was gonna get hit in the head with the beam and then the bad guy was gonna take Tommy's gun and then Tommy was going to shake out of it and save the day. And and Tommy and Harrison and Andy were like <laughs> Yeah, that's ridiculous. You know. <laughs> you know, hit hit the guy in the head with the beam. I you know I shake uh, I shake off the dust and I save the day. So they walked out of the trailer and Andy's like eh, and I go Andy, hit me in the head with the beam. And he goes what? And I go hit me in the head with the beam. We go <laughs> in the laundry room and. And uh, and Tommy goes Cosmo, come with me. You go that way. I go that way. He goes this way. The bad guy hits me. Gave, takes my gun. Tommy saves the day. So it's in this. You know, the next day, the sides come out, and I'm in the scene. I'm another scene. I'm in good. I keep reading it, and they're killing me. <laughs> so I go what?
1: So I run in Andy.
0: Andy. Andy. I said you can't kill me. He goes, why not? I said, what if there's a sequel? <laughs> he goes, all right. So we won't kill you. So now it's like three in the morning because we shot it. that it was night all night shooting like six weeks of night shooting at the Hilton Hotel. Um, and uh, the um, Andy was the camera operator on a Medium Cool with Haskell West. Oh breakfast. no, shit! And wow, th- th- you know that's where the democratic convention was and it's where the riots were and that's what they became part of medium cool because it was you know all improvised yeah so so andy was like you know it's very important to me to make this movie here at the hilton and uh so now i'm laying on the ground and they've already shot the the hit and the guy they're doing the scene where the guy comes gets the gun and I'm like, I'm moving. I'm like rolling. Oh, because I know that they could make me look dead. <laughs> but if I'm moving, they don't have the technology yet, right? If I'm moving, I, you know, at least I got a shot. Um, so so uh, I look. These other feet come in. They, somebody calls cut. And I look up. And, I, you know, it's like a camera panning up to this. Face and it's Harrison Ford and he's shaking his head very slowly, and I go what? And he goes you should be dead. <laughs> and I go oh, you're a brilliant idea. I go no no no. I, I said you know the beam hit Tommy in the head. It wasn't killing him. And Harrison goes what do you give a shit? You know you don't to, you don't have to be in the aftermath sequence. I said well what if there's a sequel? <laughs> And he smiles and he goes, there's not going to be a sequel because I ain't doing this piece of shit again. <laughs> and, I said, I love it. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. We'll just chase another $15 million asshole through the woods. <laughs> 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 and he starts laughing. And now a couple of years go by and they call and they're making the sequel. And yippee! And, and Harrison and I shared the same manager, Pat McQueenie. Who became his agent later in life. And uh, so she calls and says, Harrison's in New York. He's doing the Devil's Own. Um, they're having the big premiere. You want to go? He, he, and I said, yeah, thank you. And I so I go and it's at the Four Seasons restaurant that uh, on Park Avenue. And there's like hundreds of people. And I see Harrison Ford like popping out of this crowd. I'm coming down these stairs and he's like, pops out Joey Pants pops out Joey Pants and so I start walking tw- through the people toward him and he does the same and it's like you know on the beach right and uh, and he grabs me and he goes so are you doing that piece of shit and I said yeah he says good thing you didn't listen to me He's adorable, man. I love that guy. Uh,
1: I like Andrew Davis's um, "A, a Steel Big, Steel Little" too. Yeah, it's good.
0: That's, that's that makes two of you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, Andy
0: loves that movie. It's good. Yeah,
1: it's good. And uh, and Brickman's follow up, "But uh, Men Don't Leave" with Jessica Lange, is also very good. Very good. Yeah, it's it's hard because there's an expectation, you know, the the, the because the first film is so big. That, yeah. if it's, that if the follow-up film is not quite as well, big. Well, you know,
0: with Andy, he'd been trying to make Steel Big, Steel Little for a long time. And, you know, even when you look at The Fugitive, um, the, the corporate manipulations and pharmaceutical companies and pharma and all of the stuff that's going on that he kind of gingerly put into the storyline of the picture— You know, that's not what people remember. But when you look Mm -hmm. at it, you get a closer look now, you go, oh, wow, he was saying something here. And the same thing with with Steel Big, Steel Little.
2: I just remembered something, and this is important to fans (laughs) of this show. Uh Uh-oh. You were in The Idol Maker. Now, in The Idol Maker, Peter Gallagher plays the lead singer, Caesar, who's kind of like a Fabian And uh, the song he had, his one hit song in the movie that he sings over and over is Baby, baby, I just want to take you where I'm going Baby, baby, I just want to take you to the sky I make you feel good, baby. I make you feel loved, baby. I wanna take you (laughs) to the sky. (laughs) Mean
1: anything to you, Joe?
0: (laughs) When you did when you did that, (laughs) Jeff Barry wrote. That song. Oh, yeah. Wow.
1: He
2: was, he was the technical yeah, sure. guy. He'd he, be a
1: great guest for us. Yeah. Jeff Barry. And, Is and he still alive? I, he's around. He's, yeah, he's sure. the best. Yeah, I'd love to get him.
2: And then I remember the middle. <laughs> oh, stop <laughs> it. <laughs> Tell me why you and I are not close together. Tell me why did someone break your heart? <laughs> But so that was Bob Marcucci. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Was who was Frankie Avalon and Fabian. Uh, his you know it was it, it was really the story of Bob Marcucci and uh um Fabian, Frankie Avalon,
1: James Darren too? Uh,
0: no, not yeah. James Darren. Yeah. But but uh, those two guys mm-hmm. cuz back in the, you know in the early 50s a lot of that was happening in Philly it was the it was yeah. the Philly sound. Frankie was here. He was? Avalon, yeah. And uh, Bobby Rydell. I just saw that Bobby Rydell uh, is working on the new Taylor. He had a, probably a small part in the new Taylor Hackford movie with Bob De Niro. Um, oh,
1: also was a guest on this show, Bobby Rydell.
0: I love Bobby Rydell. A Gilbert I Gilbert impression. Go, I used to go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to. I, I saw Bobby Rydell at Palisades Amusement Park. Wow. With Cousin Bruce Morrow. Wow. Bob, yeah, I, I was like, he was the first recording star that I ever saw in person. We would, you know, I went to Palisades Park and they had that little singing arena and uh, and these guys would sing, lip sync to to 45s.
1: Yeah, it's our childhood too. We're trying to get Chuck Barris who wrote Palisades Park.
0: Chuck Barris? Yeah. Is that the guy that had the, the crazy show? The was- Gong Show. And yeah, it, it, and, and, and it,
2: allegedly, yeah. allegedly he was the a C.I.A. Hit, operative. Yes. <laughs> but he also CIA. wrote Palisades Park. And he's still alive? Yes. yes. <sighs> These
1: guys are all still around, Joe. We're trying I, to get them in here to tell well, the stories. I love wow. that,
2: that Chuck, uh, Chuck uh, what is his name, uh, the gunk show. Yeah, the gunk show. Yeah. yeah. Is that he writes that book and he goes around telling everybody that – the CIA. If he reveals anything, the CIA will kill him. And he's going on TV shows, <laughs> making movies right. about it. Yeah, they made movies about yeah. it. Yeah. Clooney directed and I'm it. Thinking, yeah. Sam so, Rockwell. But the CIA. The minute they find him,
0: <laughs> I think he was just having fun. You know, it's like that Clooney would make that movie like for real, like he really was a CIA agent. No wonder it didn't make a nickel.
1: Last thing I want to ask you, too, before we we talk about your organization, too. I've heard you talk about The Matrix, and you've said you still haven't figured it out. Is that true?
0: Yeah. uh...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan?
0: You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy And delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? (sighs) Ignorance is bliss. The plot line for The Matrix wasn't, like, so easy to follow. Yeah, both of them. You know, so uh, somebody said... uh, um, was it hard for you to follow the plot line to Memento? And Chris Nolan said he's still trying to figure out the plot line to The Matrix. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that. You're also our second guest, a little trivia, to have played Roy Cohn.
0: Yeah, I talked to Roy Cohn. You did? So I wow. called him up on the phone. I was doing – this was a mini series uh, about Robert Kennedy, yeah, right? And right? Brad Davis played yep. Played Kennedy. And Harris Yul- Ulan played – Joe McCarthy, and I and I played Roy Cohn, and I, I called up, you know, his office, uh, and I told the secretary that I was playing him in an NBC miniseries. Uh, you know, he got on the phone and spoke to me for like 40 minutes. Very charming. Very charming guy.
1: And Donald Trump's mentor.
0: Mentor.
1: Scary. Wow.
2: Well,
0: you know what's going to happen to Trump, I think, is what happened to Cohn. He, he owned nothing in his name. Uh, in the end... The uh, the government took everything after he died. Mm-hmm. He left everything to his boyfriend, mm-hmm. and then they took everything from him. But I, you know, I I think, I think this hubris, and um and back to the hole, you know, that hole that you got to fill, that Trump had a really good thing, and I think you know he's exposed himself to so much. To a magnifying glass that's going to just tear him apart. And driving down here today, mm-hmm. I passed by on on West Side Highway all those Trump buildings, and I noticed that one of the names is already down. Interesting. They, 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 you know, that they took a name, and you know, and I think in the next two or three years, all of these deals that he has—they're licensing deals. He doesn't own those buildings. I think that you know they, they, he's going to get found out and go to jail for tax evasion, and it's going to be bad.
1: You heard it here from Joey Pants, wow. the production. <laughs> and you're sitting across from the man who referred to him on national television as Mein Fuhrer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys seen the movie? It's called <laughs> Look Who's Back. It's a German film. No. Oh, it's it on down. Netflix. It's fantastic. Look who's back. Adolf Hitler comes back. It's in German.
2: <laughs> oh boy!
0: He wakes up out of you know he's like it's like he comes back after seventy years in modern Berlin. He's still in his uniform right before the, the bunker, and uh, and they think that he's a, a Hitler impersonator, and he becomes a sensation, like a, like a, like a comic. They think he's a comic. <laughs> Yeah. It's fantastic. What a premise. But the, the first interview that he does is uh, the guy who's like a Jimmy Kimmel guy. He goes, What do you want to do? What, you know, now that you're back, he goes, I want to make Germany great again. The movie was made in 2011. Wow. It's fantastic. Prophetic. It's prophetic because <laughs> it's like nothing changes. Yeah. Because he says in the movie, He goes, Look, I didn't take over. The people elected me. You know, it's not Trump, it's the people. Of course. It's of us. Of course. You know, it's like, ooh.
1: It's a, he's a case study. You want yeah. to talk about somebody wearing their insecurities and their their craziness, their their. Uh, well, everything's a lie, their stuff right? on their sleeves. You sure. Know. How did he react, by the way, when you, I know it's only television, but when oh, you yeah. called him, when you basically called him Hitler.
2: Maybe he was flattered. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. He
1: was on The Apprentice, on The Celebrity Apprentice. And, and you called him Mein Fuhrer.
2: Yeah, I said, thank you, Mein Fuhrer. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you were ahead of your time because that National Lampoon photograph. surfaced oh, spi- yes. it? was it Spy Magazine?
2: Oh, I forget. There's a photograph
1: yeah. that surfaced recently, Joe, and you'll find this interesting. It's on social media of Gilbert like doing a Nazi salute behind Trump. It's a picture that was taken yeah. in, in what, the 80s? Yeah,
2: that was in Spy <laughs> Magazine. In Spy Magazine. Me standing making faces behind Donald Trump. <laughs>
0: Fantastic!
1: <laughs> Let's plug Joe's books too. Oh, okay. Before we go, they're both terrific reads and absorbing. Thank you. Before we sign off, Joe, tell us about your organization. Tell us about No Kidding Me Too.
0: Well, you know, when we started No Kidding Me Too, was a it was a it's a celebrity outreach using celebrity to shine the light on the stigma, discrimination, and bigotry that shrouds mental disease. So, so um, that 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 was our. Uh, our mission really is is to get people to talk openly about their uneasiness, um, and then in seeking treatment, they can get better and become even greater participants in society. Uh, you know, a lot a lot has happened now. A lot more celebrities are talking about it and are making it part of 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 who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, and that come, the stigma.
1: That's what you mean. Yeah,
0: stopping stigma. the stigma of, uh, uh, and shame of of disease. I mean, uh, recently, a lot of people talking uh, are coming out and and talking about it that wouldn't have talked about it. So it's like it's gotten to, to a point where people uh, are doing it um, openly. Better. It's better what, for everybody. What
1: can our listeners do to help or? Uh,
0: Gee, you know, you know, uh, get the movie. Uh, okay, and you know, the
1: movie was made into in twenty oh nine.
0: Yeah, the documentary yeah. is called "No Kidding Me Too." Right. You can download it on Amazon, okay. and, and uh, you know, in these books, you can actually you can also go to uh, Aud- Audible and hear right. me tell the stories. I mm-hmm. should
2: read the title of this. Yeah, yeah, they're terrific, Joe, Joe Pantoliano. I got your name right. <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> Maybe I should quit while I'm ahead. And you wrote two best selling books. One of them is Who's Sorry Now? The True Story of a Stand Up Guy, and Asylum Hollywood Tales from My Great Depression, Brain Disease, Recovery, and Being My Mother's Son. So who's sorry now? In asylum.
0: Yeah, who's sorry now? Covers the first seventeen years of my life, and asylum. Uh, it was the last, uh, the last twenty.
1: Where'd the title come from? Who's sorry now?
0: <laughs> well, that was a song my mom would sing when, right. when, yes. when, when they would pop. You know, yeah. she would just dig into them, and then finally, when they start screaming at her, yeah, she starts singing, "Who's sorry now?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She yelled it. She didn't say it. Whose heart is breaking? <laughs> it was like her declaration. I won. I won.
1: And Connie Francis bookends this episode. <laughs> Joe, you have to come back. We barely scratched the surface. I hope you come back and Thank see you. us. Thank you. I'd love and, to and see us again. My God, to have you've done
2: talks s- with you guys so we, much. We were so busy talking about your craziness, we ignored your career <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been ignoring it for forty years. <laughs> Okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And uh we've had on the guy who won an Emmy for some uh character I, I don't know the name of. <laughs> Ralph. Let's say it for him, Joe. Okay. Ralph. Ralph Ciferetto ciferetto Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You got Pantaleano, right? Oh, no. we'll Close enough. <laughs> oh, and Joey Pants would make it easier. That's right. So, Joe Pantaleano, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Joe. This was terrific. Thank you guys very much, really. We'll see you again. Okay.